So if you open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, and we're in chapter 1. Again, Revelation meaning the unveiling, a pulling back of the veil. So some people may look at Revelation and think you can't understand it, but, you know, all of the Bible takes a certain amount of interpretive work and prayer in the Holy Spirit. And um, as we'll read, it says that it can't be understood. There's no need in writing it if you can't understand it. But those who are his servants, understanding will be given. And it's the unveiling, Revelation itself, apocalyptos, or I get the word apocalypse, which the world uses as this big, you know, the last thing that's going to happen is this apocalyptic. But it it's just has come to mean that because the world looks at the book of Revelation and they see it as all being about, you know, what's going to happen at the end. But that's not really what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is about what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to happen. And that takes you to the end. But it's about more than just that. If the book of Revelation is just about what's going to happen at the very end, then, you know, if we're not living at that time, then, you know, what's the good of it for us? But what it's about is um, a look behind the physical. It's a look behind what do we see happening. There's more to the church than just what we see physically. There's more to the church than just what's going on spiritually because those things impact one another and so this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ where we see more of him and we also see him revealing more to us so I'm going to begin reading just um, in chapter 1 verse 1 we're not going to read the entire book of Revelation um, all the way through by the time we get to the end but we're going to keep this in context this morning and before we do uh, let us go to the Lord in prayer Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time where you call us to come together, gather around your word as those who, who have been born again, as those who are believers have been called and even commanded to come together, to, that we're being fitted together as living stones, that we are uh, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but that we're to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have drawn us together in this place. And we thank you that even as, as people watch and listen or even attend that maybe are not believers, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ so that your spirit goes forth and accomplishes that for which um, you have intended it. So for the believer, if we don't harden our hearts, and even when we are hardening our hearts, this is the work of your spirit as a sword to do its work. And even if those who aren't believers here, we pray that the Spirit would do his work too and bring people to life. So we are here as your church, gathered around your word to hear what you have to say to the churches. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, 
Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. The word of the Lord. We're going to come back and, and go a little further, Lord willing. So in verse 8, we see God himself speaks. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the, the A and the Z. I am the beginning and the end. And insinuating also, I'm everything in between. I am all in all, and I am him who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And then John speaks, and we're sure this is the, the Apostle John that's speaking. He also wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And so he says, I, John, your brother. And we can stop at each one of these words, and we can just go on about it. But don't miss each of the words, your brother. How's he our brother? He's our brother in Christ. We have the same father. So he's saying these words with us, to us, saying, I received this revelation, and I'm giving it to you. I'm one of you. Or he probably said, I'm one of y'all, if he was speaking in Greek. So I'm one of y'all. I'm in it. Brother, I am your brother and partner that word, every now and then you gotta, you got to hear the Greek word. It is, um, I wrote it down, sin koinonos. Sin, or sin is like with something, like a synonym. And then koinonia is that word. And the, a lot of ministries use the word koinonia. It means fellowship. It means uh, uh, communion. Uh, the table of the Lord is called the koinonia of the Lord, too. It's the communion, the fellowship of the Lord. So sin koinias. And what he's saying is, I am your fellow um, in felt communer with you. And so the ESV uses this word partner, and that's a part of it. The New American Standard says fellow partaker, and the King James says companion. So you can see how all of those words try to capture this idea that it is more than just him saying, hey, I'm in this with you guys. He is like in close communion with us by the Spirit in the physical things that we're all going through, but also he's united to us in Christ, 
we're all in Christ so that when we come together, particularly around communion table, the Lord's Supper, the Koinonia table, we are united to Christ by his spirit. And what Paul in 1 Corinthians reminds us of is you also have to discern the body in that uh, you are the body of Christ. And we're all united by his spirit. So if we have division among us, and we are ignoring certain people and being thinking we're better than other people, whatever they may be, however that might work itself out. It did in the church in Corinth socioeconomically. But however it works out, if there are divisions between us, when we come to the table, then Paul even says it's not the Lord's table you're partaking of because there's a communion between Christ and us and one another. And this is one of the reasons the body is to come together on the Lord's day to, to worship. Now he says, I am in this close relationship with you. I'm partnering, partnering with you in these three things, and they're all connected to Jesus. It's kind of funny in the English. It's like it may just look like um, there's patient endurance in Jesus. But no, he's saying all of this. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance in Jesus Christ. The thing that binds those three things together is Jesus Christ, that as we go through tribulation, as we're in the kingdom, as we seek to have patient and have patient endurance, it's all because of Jesus Christ. And the meaning is that ultimately we are connected to Jesus by this Holy Spirit. So if we are connected in kingdom or in a sense even in kingship as there's a sense in which we're all like many kings under and united together in Christ if this is true that we're in a kingdom then why the tribulation and the need for patient endurance if, if Jesus Christ as we believe is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty the, the, the power and security the place of the right hand and he's enthroned in the heavens. If he's king and controller, and he's the one who is, the Alpha and Omega, he's all there is, and he's the Almighty, then why do we have tribulation? But the first thing to see is not the question why, but that the fact that there is. You're going to go through tribulation, and John says, I'm a partner with you in it. Not, and this is what we can, we'll look at as we go through, the great tribulation versus the tribulation that we go through, just, I don't want to get into a whole lot of end times theology because it is one of the areas in which, excuse me, is one of the areas in which amateur theological people who maybe only want to focus on one particular thing, eschatology, end time stuff, that's going to be their thing. And you're going to find churches that are going to say, you mean you don't agree with me on, on the order of things on the end times? I can't have anything to do with you because you're obviously, you're out. Just like differences on baptism or differences on the Lord's Supper. If uh, there are certain differences which all churches should agree, it's like, no, you're, you're not doing that right. And that makes you not a church. But there are some differences in which we need to be able to say, all right. You know, let's reason together. Let's look at the Word of God together. Let's continue to fellowship and, and worship together as we focus on Christ. But this end time stuff, 
I mean, this is like a lot of people, there's a lot of money made on books about this stuff. So a lot of people have read, a lot of people have made their minds, and all I would say is whatever your end time views are, hold off a minute. Let's just let's let the word of God speak and let him say what he is going to say, and particularly about this tribulation. Whatever one believes currently about a tribulation that is to come, there is no doubt that there is tribulation now. And depending on where you live, that level of tribulation is more or less. And if I were to ask people, what do you think the last day's tribulation are go is going to be like? I can guarantee you that there are people in the world right now who are currently experiencing that. So be careful in thinking that what we see with our eyes in our culture, in our world, even on your TV sets and interwebs, because a lot of this stuff, we think that we see everything everywhere all the time, and we don't. So there is tremendous tribulation and persecution of God's church throughout the world even today. And John is a partner with them in it, and so are we. We are united. When one suffers, we all suffer, whether we're aware of it or not. So our prayers have to go out as we're willing to spend ourselves and our lives to be able to do what we can to advance the cause of Christ. But why the tribulation and the need for patient endurance? Because Jesus Christ indeed is Christ now, and he is ruling now, and we are now a kingdom of priests. We are, in some sense, priestly kings, and these things are happening. So why the current tribulation and the need for patient endurance? It's because we're living in times of grace, which sounds counterintuitive. It's like, wait a minute, if you're living in times of grace, we ought not to have to deal with tribulation, and we ought not to have to have patient endurance. But it's because we're living in days of grace, and what the days of grace mean is that we're waiting for the full number of believers to come in, that Jesus Christ is still doing the work of saving people in this world, of saving souls. There are still souls being saved, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. But when the end comes, that's it. There are no more people coming into the kingdom. There will be a last day, but we live in the days of grace where the doors are open. The spirit goes throughout the world. The gospel is being proclaimed. The strong man has been bound. He can no longer deceive the nations to the point of stopping the Holy Spirit from going forth. The Holy Spirit has gone forth throughout all the world. Our job is to work to proclaim in the power of the Holy Spirit to everyone in the world, including our world and everywhere else, the good news of Jesus Christ, that right now the salvation of souls and the making of disciples is the primary mission of the Christian, primary mission of the church. And that means the Christians as related to and united together as the church, our primary mission is the salvation of souls and the making of disciples. Well, wait a second. I thought one of my jobs as a parent is to make sure I'm parenting my children. Saving souls, making disciples. That's what you do. You do it as a parent. Well, I'm a teacher. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Everywhere you are, whatever you're doing, you're supposed to be thinking primarily, one, be a disciple, be a follower of Christ. And what does that do? Salvation of souls, making disciples. 
Everywhere I am, wherever I go, wherever I do, anything I do that's not particularly related to that can be a waste of time. Now you have to provide food and shelter and stuff like this, but as long as I'm trying to do that so that we can survive and move forward and promote the great commission of the church to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and saving souls, because this is what the church and what Jesus is doing. And we're to faithfully witness to the testimony of Jesus in the face of suffering. And the question can be asked of us, as it was to Job, will we still worship God when we experience trial and suffering? Or do we only worship him for good positive feelings? I want something that makes me happy. I want something that helps my life to feel like it's going good. But if you base your life, even if you're not a believer, and you always base your life on positive feelings, then <laughs> it's going to be hard to get out of bed. You have to have purpose. You have to have meaning beyond the simple everyday things that you're doing. There has to be some reason behind even that, some, something underneath everything else. And that's what Christ tells us that there is. And here John reminds us that he is not above it all either, and neither was Jesus. He entered into our suffering. Even Jesus, who called himself our brother, fellow partaker of the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. And since he did it perfectly, and he has endured, he has defeated death, and he has risen and given us his spirit so that we can be like him in that. In Christ Jesus, we can endure these things, and we can understand there is greater purpose than we've ever imagined. He entered into our suffering and endured it to the point of death, but the point of that death was made our ultimate victory. I mean, look again at Revelation 1, verse 5 and 6. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the call to us today is to patient endurance. Nobody wants to pray for patience because you're, we can be afraid that the way God will teach you patience is by causing things to come into your life that will require you to need patience. God is not a genie. There's always the thing about genies in our, you know, the way we read about it and stuff is it doesn't matter what you wish for, it's not going to turn out well. I mean, and I'll talk about the, um, the X-Files episode where there was a genie and uh, Mulder was trying to come up with the perfect wish and he had like a 40-page document or something and he's coming up with all the possibilities and the genie's like, oh, don't do it, man. No matter what, it is not going to come out well. One guy wished to be invisible. And he went out and got hit by a car because they didn't see him. It's like that's the way genie stuff works. God is not a genie. He's not going to take something great and you ask for it. It's just going to turn out bad. God takes stupid things we ask for and he 
changes it so it comes out to something for our benefit. So if we pray for patience, don't be afraid to pray for patience. I've known people who didn't want to go to church because they've had experiences in their life where when they started going to church, things started going badly. And it got hard. And they didn't want to go. And I've seen people have that. And then they come, and then things got worse. And I've tried to explain to people, perhaps the bad stuff was coming anyway. And God wanted to make sure you were in church so you could deal with it a little better. Now, don't run from him again when the bad time and the trial comes. Because that's why you were brought here in the first place is to be prepared for this thing. But we need to have this endurance. And we all want endurance. I mean, we'd pray for that. Give me endurance. Give me endurance. Well, you know, when you pray for endurance, you're also asking for things to be more difficult because you don't have to endure things you love. I don't know what it is that you love. If it's like ice cream, you don't endure sitting through it. You know, you, whatever it is, it's like you, you love it. So endurance and patient endurance, maybe you put those two things together, it's just like, this is going to be a while. And you're going to have to endure some things for a while. But in Christ, there is patient endurance. So that should be one of the things that we, we get and that we see. And then he goes on. And he says, uh, let me just continue in verse 9. Brother, partner in tribulation in the kingdom, patient endurance in Jesus Christ on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This was like a, a, a prison island. Uh, it was right off the coast of Turkey. Um, and it, apparently what had happened was uh, he's preaching the gospel and there's persecution of Christians during this time. And he's sent away onto this island where he won't disturb the peace anymore. He will not be proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ anymore. And you can imagine how you must feel isolated. Now what? How this happened to me? You know, I'm an apostle. Surely John had his right theology, so he knows God's in control. What does he have for me here? Little did he know he's going to get the revelation of Jesus Christ while he's there. Maybe he had to be there to get this revelation. I don't know. But oftentimes these great great difficulties in which we find ourselves and we think this is the most horrific thing ever how could this happen what where is God it's like he's in that too he's got has a reason for you where you are and he calls us to patient endurance but he's at Patmos in exile because on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and he says in verse 10 and I was in the spirit. Now what he means by that is having this vision that's being given him on the Lord's day, which is you know, since the resurrection is the first day of the week. It's the resurrection day. The church has met early since the second century. You've seen records of the church meeting on the Lord's day as opposed to um, the, the Old Testament Sabbath. But on the day of resurrection when the church is meeting as we are today. And he says, I heard behind me a, a loud voice like a trumpet. Um, and so this all harkens back to this Old Testament, uh, Exodus and, and, and Numbers. Whenever God would meet with his people on the, uh, on the mountain or God would speak to his people, it was, it was like this. We can go to places there where you can see, you can you know, look it up, trumpet in the Old Testament. You'll see God's voice like a trumpet. Everybody can hear it. There's no mistaking it. And he spoke loudly so that all could hear. And when John says this, 
I'm sure that's what he said, but there's lots of ways to say I heard a loud voice, and it was terribly loud. He said like a trumpet. Why did he say like a trumpet? One, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say it, and two, because he wants us to think Old Testament. This is not a divorce from the Old Testament. This is the continued revelation of Jesus Christ from the garden to the paradise of God. One story all the way through. We are not a church that says we're a New Testament church. We're the Bible church. And this is one of the places where we're thrown right back into it. He wants us to know it's the same God. The same God that spoke to Moses, the same God that spoke to Noah, to Abraham, to Adam, the same God that had speaking on the mountain and mighty peals of thunder, that God of the Old Testament, that God is the voice he heard. And then the next thing is, well, what do you say? Because that's important. I know I've been to churches before where they say some, a, a prophet spoke up and said, God told me this. And I'd come home and I'd tell Amy that they told me that a prophet spoke at that church and God told them that God spoke through them. And then Amy would say, well, what did they say? And I thought, I said, well, I didn't think to ask that question. <laughs> I mean, the Lord God, somebody's claiming that the Lord God of the universe spoke and you didn't even ask what it was. It, and I think that's part of our problem to us, to me, to certain places, churches and people is more important that he speaks than what he said. So this is important. Not just that he spoke, it's what he say. And what he said is, write what you see in a book. That's why we have it. So what you have is what he said. God speaking directly to us today through this. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he names these seven churches. Uh, if you look on a map, they just it kind of goes in a circle like this. It's no particular reason that they can come up with as to why it's in that order. Possibly if you were carrying the letter, that would be the order in which you would go as you're traveling to these different churches. But the number seven represents fullness. So it's not just a letter to these particular churches, although they are particular letters to those particular churches, but they have um, meaning and purpose and message for all the churches throughout all time, and that is the reason um, that the number seven is most likely used here. There were a lot more churches than that. Um, then I turned, so he heard this behind him, so I turned. And this is like Moses, he was going forward, he's, the burning bush is happening, and he turns aside and he goes to see. So not only does he have this, he hears, but he turns to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So let's stop here a second. And so he sees is seven golden lampstands. So already in verse four, there were the seven spirits who were before the throne of God, which represents the Holy Spirit, the fullness of his spirit. Um, and then in verse 11, we see there the seven churches that you're sending this to. And now we have the first of the vision, he sees seven golden lampstands. And we're already told, we're already triggered to think Old Testament. And so what we have to look at is, all right, did golden lampstands have anything to do with the Old Testament? And of course, yes, it did. But before we look, I want to jump a little bit ahead to Revelation 1.20, where we're told what those things are. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars, we'll get to that in a bit, that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there's no doubt about this one. He turns and he sees these seven golden lampstands, and somebody will say, there's no way you know what that represents. Yeah, it is. He told us whatever. That's the seven churches. That's those seven churches. And then there's more. Because we know that in the tabernacle of God in the Old Testament, one golden lampstand with seven lamps that burned oil, they were tilted forward or some way reflected the light forward onto the table of presence, it was called, on which the showbread was placed. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And so we know the bread represented Jesus Christ. And then you've got this one lampstand with these seven lamps with oil in them, and they cast the light onto that, onto the bread, onto Jesus Christ. And then what we're seeing is, this is the church. This is the light of God. Being, the light shines on Jesus Christ. And then we even see Jesus is even the light. And he shines through the churches. And so, the prophet Zechariah. Now, how do you find Zechariah? The easiest way that I know is go to find, find Matthew, which is the first book of the gospel so if you kind of find Matthew and you just go back you get the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi and the next to the last one is Zechariah so you'll find Zechariah and we want to see Zechariah chapter 4 <clears throat> and I'm just going to read the, these beginning in verse 1 these 10 verses and listen to the vision that Zechariah has and remember the vision that we're seeing in Revelation and, and see what you learn. So Zechariah chapter 4 verse 1. And the angel who talked to me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it on the right of one bowl and the other the left, which we'll see this again later in Revelation 2. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, Lord? And the angel said, who talked to me uh, answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it's kind of interesting because he's not exactly answering his question, but he does answer his question, and he's saying there's some sense in which that is the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see is the church is empowered and enlightened by the Holy Spirit. We are to be a light, as Jesus told us. But this is wonderful. How are we to grow? How are we supposed to advance the kingdom of God? Not by might or power. What's that mean? Not by doing what the church did a lot of times, you know, the tip of the sword, forcing people to be baptized, forcing people into the kingdom. He said, no, by the Spirit. And he goes on in verse 8. Well, he gets verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. If you say this mountain, get up and move into the sea, it shall be done. This big mountain in front of Zerubbabel. It's going to be flattened down because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And he shall bring forward the top stone and shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, 
The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And then I said to him, and he goes on about these two olive trees that we'll talk about later. So the eyes of the Lord. We're going to look in just a second the eyes of Jesus too. What do the eyes do? They see. Right. <laughs> so the eyes of the Lord. These seven, this, this lamp, the lampstand of these seven lights, they see throughout the whole world. It's a, it's a brightness that goes, that sees. And also we're going to see enables us to see. And if this indeed is the church as we're being told now, we're learning that Zechariah was told the Spirit of God. Now Jesus comes, he's got these no longer one lampstand with seven branches, but seven lampstands, seven lights. And Jesus is in the midst of these so that it's no longer just Israel that's being a light to the world where the Spirit of God goes out from Israel to all the world. He's done that. And now what he does is lampstand, 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 lampstand. It reminds me of the visual of, was um, it's not Lance Armstrong, Neil Armstrong. See the first man walked on the moon? <clears throat> he had, uh, Lance Armstrong would have had to take his bicycle to get there. But Neil Armstrong, walked on the moon, planted the American flag. Now you could say, they're basically saying, the moon belongs to us. This is exactly what he's doing. But we had a presence. First one. And then Jesus is going throughout all the world. Lampstand. When the church is planted, it's a light. A church is planted. It's a light. It's a light. It's a light. And there's seven of them here, which represents this fullness. It also represents the eyes of God. In verse 13, then... Um, verse 13, and in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man. Now, if I have more time, eh, I got time. Daniel chapter 7, uh, son of man is the most common phrase that Jesus used for himself when he walked this earth. Um, and Daniel, if you find the, the major prophets of um, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then um, Ezekiel, and then you go to, you'll find Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. And just hold your place there. And let me read um, this description of what he sees when he's talking about Jesus Christ. So in the midst, and it's very important, he's in the midst of lampstands. This means he's in the midst of the churches. This is he who's in the middle of the churches. One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, which is the, the high priest robe. There's a name for that. And this is like the high priest robe. And a golden sash around his chest. And that's kingly. They wore these sashes. Sashes. <laughs> kind of like a tie. But this is a golden one. And so it's not, that's unusual. And this represents kingship. So he has priest and king going on here. And the, the verse, verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And we go to Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. I looked 
thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands of thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and a peoples and nations and languages to serve him. That's Revelation. This is him. This is God. Ancient of Days and Son of Man. This is God the Father, God the Son. And in verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And then Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. Daniel says, I lifted up my eyes and I looked, and behold, a man in cloth linen with a belt of fire gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl and his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were flaming torches. And again, it's his eyes. Flaming torches, like you can see things. This is also, there's judgment that's involved in these things. Not just blessing, but also judgment. But the eyes of God are everywhere, and he can see all things. His arms and legs, like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words, like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that you speak, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling, and then he said to me, Fear not. So we go back to Revelation, verse 17. When I saw him, this description he sees of Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and he said, fear not. It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. The Holy Spirit wants us to know this is God from the Old Testament. The God that did all that powerful stuff. Creator, redeemer, sustainer, the defender of his people, the, the rescuer from Egypt, the one who does, did the, the, uh, the plagues and parted the Red Sea and brought his people into power and all of these things. That God that spoke, that same God is the one standing in the midst of the churches. He is still here, and he is among us. Verse 16, in his right hand he held the seven stars, which are what? The angels of the churches. Angel means messenger. And these are heavenly messengers in this case, but they're the pastors. They're the elders of these churches. This is who you take this message to. You take the written message to these angels. Now you think about that. Okay, well, 
this is a physical thing to a spiritual being. No, we're going to take the physical thing to the physical angels, the messengers, so that these messengers are the pastors of these churches. And he holds them in their right hand. Position of power, position of protection. It also means if a person says that they are a pastor and they're not, they will be cast away from him, but they cannot be taken from his hand, neither can any believer. And what Jesus will say as he's talking to each of the seven churches, he says, you need to repent and return to me or your lampstand can be taken away. So not only can a pastor be removed, but an entire lampstand can be removed. So as we think about the lampstand in this church, you know, which is particularly in Albemarle, we can also think of the lampstand of the church in the United States. What's happening to our lampstand? Are we growing brighter? A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nobody takes a, a light and puts it under a bushel, but they set it on a lampstand so it might give light to all. Is that what the church is doing? And it, you might say, depends on the church. And we would say, technically, no. The church is a light. The church does proclaim God's beauty and grace and mercy. There are some churches that have become synagogues of Satan. They've so far removed themselves from the word of God and the gospel of God that they're no longer considered churches. Flee from those churches. You see churches that are beginning to go in that direction. Do all you can to pull them back to the word of God. Be careful because this is Christ's church. And he will do these things in the right time and in the right matter. But from the Son of God's mouth, the Son of Man's mouth, the sharp two-edged sword comes forth. And we know that in Hebrews chapter 4, the Word of God is a sharp... Well, let's look at it real quick. we got a second here. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Let's make sure I, I read it properly. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In Ephesians 6, 17, as we're talking about the put on the full armor of God, part of it is the sword of the spirit which Ephesians says is the word of God. So this sword is coming from the mouth of the Son of Man. The word of God is the mouth of Jesus Christ. And that is the sword. And what does the sword do? You take it and you drive it through a live person and they become a dead person, if it serves its purpose properly. But the word of God is the only sword, and I get this, Dr. Kelly tells this story. He says that there's a, a North Carolina preacher, maybe he's a South Carolina preacher. One of them Carolina preachers used this analogy, and he says the sword of the Spirit is the only sword that you drive through a dead man, and he becomes alive. He may also go through one who believes he is alive and show him that he's dead. So the word of God has this dual purpose. It is to convict and confirm people in their death, but it's also to bring dead people to life by the work of the Spirit. And that is what we wield. That is the offensive and defensive weapon. It's what we proclaim is the Word of God. And He is in the midst of the churches. And He says, so John falls down to worship Him, fear not. 
Because, and he tells them why you can fear not. Because I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one, and I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Whenever you hear death, Hades is, is not far behind. Death is you die. Hades is, there's an ongoing presence of the dead. You don't just die and that's it. You, Hades is the place of the dead. Uh, Jesus Christ ascended into Hades. He was three days. He, he continued under the power of death, his body. But Jesus has the keys to those things, death and Hades. That means the only way out of that, death and Hades, is whoever's got the keys. And Jesus is the one with the keys. So it's two things. One, it's him or nobody. And two, he has the ability to defeat death, which he did, and to bring us out of Hades. And as the church goes forward into even to bring people out of hell, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us as the church is to be going forward into this realm. And then he says, verse 19, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars, that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Man may kill the body, but Jesus has the keys to release. Death has no power over the believer, and our eternity is secure in him. But Jesus didn't just come up to be about what happens to us after we die. He's with us now, and he has a mission for us to do. And so we have to look, O oh church, and we ask ourselves, do we understand that we are lampstands? That we are the light of the world? And Dr. Kelly, in his commentary, he writes, The most important place of the shining of the light of God into this dark world takes place in and through the church. That's why Satan hates it. That's why the world hates it. And be careful because your fleshly nature will hate it. But you have been born again and you've been given the spirit of Christ. It's a comfort, an empowering comfort to know that Jesus stands in the midst of the churches. The risen Lord has brought down many evil empires since Rome to the <clears throat> to destroy the that's bad, I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> the risen Christ has brought down many evil empires since Rome. And the destiny of the church is always controlled by the Lord, not political leaders and not demonic, demonic powers. Jesus is building his church. And so the church is vastly important. It's the center of everything that God is doing in the world. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is he at the center of your world? If Christ is at the center of the church, and you're out here, where's your center? Because if you're centered around anything else, you're going to live in a, a chaotic world. Jesus is the source of our light. He's the source of natural light, intelligent light, uh, emotional light, and saving, soul-transforming light. That's what the Word of God is, the light of God, saving, soul-transforming light. So when the huge issues of death and eternity are settled, and we see the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, the Alpha, Omega, the First and the Last, the Almighty, <laughs> holding the angels in his right hand in the midst of all the churches, then we can say we can have peace and we can have patient endurance. The tribulation in this kingdom is for purpose. And we can patiently endure in Christ in this kingdom, even so. 
come quickly. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence amongst the churches. Help us to be a light. Help us to have our individual lives to circle around you and to recognize that, that we're to be the church and that we can do as we see this unveiling of what's going on behind the scenes. Not just us alone praying to you in heaven. You're right here among us as we're even going to proclaim in the Lord's Supper in just a second. And this we pray your blessing upon in Christ's name. Amen.